0: Yale Podcast Network The epigraph that I use to open the book is a line by Wittgenstein in Philosophical Investigations that I've always loved that I think captures this point with his in his kind of laconic haunting way. And it's um if a lion could speak, we could not understand him.
1: Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. In March of 2016, a group of scientists reported a discovery from the forests of central Japan. Writing in Nature Communications, Dr. Toshitaka Suzuki and his team announced that compositional syntax, the property of speech that enables it to express limitless meanings, was not unique to human languages. It had been observed in the vocal system of a bird. The paper sparked a flurry of tweets. It was also picked up
0: by the popular press, and for good reason. Given the putative role of syntax in expressing higher-order thought in humans, Its presence in an avian vocal system suggested that when a bird sings, it is not simply naming a stimulus in its
1: immediate vicinity, but rather expressing a thought. In the acclaimed new novel, The Study of Animal Languages, published in February 2019 by Viking Penguin and written by When We Talk About Animals co-host Lindsay Stern, a biologist named Prue conducts a similar experiment in her laboratory at a New England liberal arts college. Like the actual study, Pruse is touted as evidence that animals have yet another capacity we assumed made us humans unique. But in a speech at the heart of the book where she announces her findings, Prue suggests that the study teaches us more about ourselves than it does about the animals in question. The study of animal languages has already been hailed by Vanity Fair, the New York Journal of Books, the Washington Independent, Southern Living, Nylon, Bustle, Literary Hub, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, Booklist, and the New York Post as a tragicomedy of errors about our increasingly vexed relationship to the natural world and to each other. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a Ph.D. candidate in comparative literature at Yale, Lindsay Stern, as one reviewer aptly put it, has Nabokov's trinity of attributes that distinguish the great novelists, storyteller, teacher, and enchanter. The Study of Animal Languages is her first novel. Lindsay, it's great to have you as a guest on When We Talk About Animals. Well, we're still sitting across the table from
0: each other, but the tables have turned. Thank you,
1: Bebecca. <laughs> well, I loved your novel, Lindsay, and I'd like to start with you reading from it to give listeners um, a taste. Um, there's a scene that takes place following a visit to an aquarium. Will you please read from that scene and then preface the reading with the context of the general outline of the story and what's going on? Sure.
0: So this book takes place over a week, um, and it's set in Rhode Island at, in a college town, a New England Liberal Arts College. And it's told from the point of view of an analytic philosopher who specializes in knowledge and who's interested in the philosophy of language. And he's married to Prue, who um, you mentioned in the introduction, who studies birdsong in particular. And Even though they both focus on language um, and in various ways are both trying to get a bird's eye view of things, they're having trouble communicating. And um, when the book opens, the narrator's father-in-law has come to listen to Prue deliver the lecture she's going to give on birdsong. And this scene takes place after she's given the lecture when the father-in-law and Ivan, the narrator, have paid a visit to an aquarium that has ended up disastrously with Frank questioning the ethics of keeping sharks in captivity and feeling as though he had established a kind of connection with the animals there. So I'm going to read a scene that takes place. He and Ivan are in the car. They're driving back from a police station where Frank has been taken after he tried unsuccessfully to free one of the sharks. You know how in music, The notes go straight to the feeling, Frank says, without wedging a thought in between. That's what their language was like. I don't know what you're talking about, I say, wary of triggering him again. But he continues, shamelessly. Everything they felt, it was written on their faces, in their flourishes. We have reached an intersection. I break, yielding to a slender man of Frank's vintage, He is dragging a suitcase, its little wheels accumulating slush. I nod as he raises a gloved hand in thanks, struck by the fact that the only thing standing between him and oblivion is the pressure of my soul. So in tune with one another, Frank is saying, their feelings, if that's what they were, they flowed through me. Beautiful, terrible dances of the soul more exquisite than any thought of mine could conjure up. I felt oafish beside them, kid. Their joy was painful to me. You had a manic episode, I say. I swear to you, he turns to me. I couldn't tell this to the officers, but I swear to you I could hear. What you heard came from your own mind. Beyond the traffic light, the old soap factory is coming into view. As part of an effort to gentrify the neighborhood, the state converted it last spring into a small museum. Prue and I took May soon after it opened as part of our campaign to keep her occupied during her parents' divorce. Soap is made from lye and tallow, we learned, which comes from ash and melted fat. May had marveled at how two unclean things could be converted, through immense pressure and heat, into agents of cleanliness. I've never been sure of anything, Frank says. I, he drops the last syllable, pinching the bridge of his nose. With alarm, I realize he is crying.
1: The scene hints at one of the major themes of your novel, which is the nature of language. The language of non-human animals is the cover and the title suggests, but also the limits and nature of our human language and how it defines and mediates and complicates our relationships with each other and with ourselves. I'm curious, did the study of non-human animal languages inspire the novel or did that come later after your focus on human relationships and the role that language plays among us?
0: Well... There was a moment, I remember I had studied the philosophy of language in college, and there was a moment when I walked into my professor's office to ask him about a paper, and he had this lie detector on his cabinet that was, it was like a gimmick to intimidate students. (laughs) And um, it would basically flash red or green in response to noise. And it was a spring day, and his window was open, and I walked in. He was standing behind the desk. No one else was in there. But the machine was flashing red, and it was picking up the melody of a bird outside. And I we were both, we, we looked at each other, and I remember that image of the flashing lie detector kind of lodged in my mind. And it pointed to, I guess, what to me is such an exciting mystery, which is all of these noises that we tune out as gibberish or as mere kind of noise might mean something so i think it was it was sort of my own curiosity in that that catalyzed this book and then the kind of deeper i got into it and the more i the more studies i read on the methods scientists were using to kind of understand these vocal systems and and kind of realizing how dramatically different all of those methodologies were. The question of what these vocal systems might be communicating pivoted on the assumption that when we speak to each other, we understand what we're saying to each other. And um, I guess that's how my own interest intellectually in this stuff cascaded into this book about a marriage in crisis.
1: There's a great line in the middle of the book um, as part of a speech, which you referenced at the beginning, that uh, takes place about halfway through the novel, which gets at this point in which Prue, the ornithologist, says to the audience, our position is curious. Some future species may share it one day when they discover the ruins of our libraries. If the oceans haven't wiped the volumes clean by then, they will find traces not only of our Bibles and constitutions, but also of our symphonies. Perhaps they will take an interest in these primitive dots and lines, measuring their width, height, and so on, and believe that in doing so they have discovered music, even as they work all the while in silence. Which I thought was a really poignant way of getting at this point that the problem of translation between humans and animals is vast, but the problem of translation between humans is also vast at times, which which is experienced by your characters in the novel.
0: Right, right. No, I I know. And and I mean, what's great about fiction is that you can kind of explore what's at stake in that problem, and um and the pain it causes and the comedy it it elicits, and. The epigraph that I use to open the book is a line by Wittgenstein in philosophical investigations that I've always loved that I think captures this point with his, in his kind of laconic, haunting way. And it's, um, if a lion could speak, we could not understand him. And to me, that is really, is it seems as though he's talking about the lion, but um, he's talking equally about us and about how we assume that... We're making sense when we make these noises, but there are ways in which we're there are these kind of unbridgeable distances between us, and um, and I think what I was interested in exploring is sort of the ways in which language, this capacity that's said to unite us and to separate us from the other animals, can perpetuate those divisions.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting and that's it's a fascinating epigraph because in a way you could flip it too and say lions do speak and we're not trying to understand them in that there's so much focus often particularly in, in linguistics it seems but in academia more broadly on defining language and defining it often in a way where it's exclusive to humans. So for instance in the opening scene of the novel – the narrator Ivan, um, who's a philosopher, is driving with Frank, the father-in-law, um, who we heard from already, back to their house, and is they're together starting to listen to an audio book, which is a biography of Noam Chomsky. And Chomsky, both both in the novel and in real life, is of course perhaps the most famous linguist of our time, and is often called the father of modern linguistics. And Chomsky's main argument is that the you know the underlying structure of languages are biologically determined in the human mind, and so therefore genetically transmitted. Um, So regardless of differences among cultures or societies, all humans share the same linguistic abilities and that this with various criteria is exclusive to humans, not to animals. And so I'm wondering—and this this is a very common view still, it seems, in academia now. So for Prue, the main character, to come in and for you to come in to academia in real life too and argue that, in fact, animals do have languages is really quite radical, probably even more so than it would be in the general public. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know me. You know how provocative I am. So well, I, just... <laughs> I do. I do. And I should say for listeners, Lindsay is getting a, a PhD in comparative literature, which I learned from Lindsay requires that you learn five languages. Is that right? Be fluent in five four, languages? Four. four, And for a while... Only reading knowledge. Well, <laughs> that's, that's more <laughs> than me. But um, for a while, you were trying to convince them to let you do whale songs. I as well, well, I... You've given up, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I think they would humor it if I brought them a compelling proposal, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. I thought it was mean, a great idea. But I think to your to your point before about the kind of mathematical approach to these vocal systems, the the whale song is such a great example of a case in which I guess, whale clicks, to be more precise. So these are these incredibly finely nuanced sounds that whales make through their nasal cavities. We think to communicate, we don't really know. Scientists have been recording them and views about what exactly um, the clicks might encode in terms of information and views about what social functions they may have. There's a lot of um, controversy about that. But there we had this amazing situation in which if you map those clicks, if you kind of look at them on a sonogram, they're incredibly nuanced. And yet, what does that actually tell you? I mean, it's so, so on the one hand, it feels like there's this tantalizing mystery there, this code to kind of unpack. But on the other hand, I think, um, I think that when we use the term language, and this is what so fascinates me about the scientific literature too, we talk about language as though it's this capacity that we can test for in another group or in another mind. And um, and I think, I mean, to a certain extent that makes sense. We can devise, ver- we can sort of define what it is as Chomsky's done and then design various tests to see if we can detect its presence. But... <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, there are other points of view on language. Um, um, I mean, Wittgenstein, someone who, who's pursued this line of thought where when we talk about language, it's a little bit more like talking about personhood. So so it's like you wouldn't say, do someone have the, the capacity to be a citizen or do they have the capacity to be a barbarian? Or, it's like if you hear an utterance as language, It means that you're recognizing that being as a fellow being and you're kind of changing how you view yourself and your own noises as a result. Um, And so anyway, that I think was the stew of those different understandings, in many cases totally incommensurable understandings of what language is and what that might teach us about our own relationships to each other were definitely part of what catapulted me into this thing.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And it reminds me of a book that I know you were inspired by in writing this book and like very much by J.M. Coetzee, the South African writer called The Lives of Animals, which features a character named Elizabeth Costello. And like your book, it's an academic novel. In his case, a novella broken down into two sections, the first being The Philosophers and the Animals, and the second is called The Poets and the Animals. And likewise, there's a speech in this book, um, in this case to do with comparing how we treat animals to other human atrocities. But what was interesting in that in that setup, which I think you're getting at too, and that the, the segment you read gets at as well when you talk about how there are elements like music and in, in our connections with other people and other animals that truly defy words or words fail us in terms of the empathy or what, what, it, what is it that Frank feels with the sharks that he's looking at there or that you feel with another human who you're not necessarily communicating with verbally but is nonetheless extraordinarily profound and critical to empathy. But um, to go back to Coetzee, he has two— he has these two setups, in which, which in a way are comparing, sort of appealing to rationality and philosophy versus appealing to poets and storytellers, as a way of getting at the question of how do you truly expand the sympathetic imagination. And so, I wonder, did you think about this? What role did Coetzee's book play in both shaping your thinking and and in the and in, in the creation of this novel? That
0: it's an amazing book. Um, everyone should. Find, I happened upon it. I actually, I was on this fellowship that year that I wrote the first draft and I got stranded in Bangkok because of this visa blunder I had. And I encountered it. And I encountered the version that's called Elizabeth Costello that kind of furnishes it with more of her backstory. And in that speech she gives um, before a group of academics, she starts out, so she has those wonderful chapters on poetry and on the question of If we can imagine our Nagel's famous question of, could we, what is it like to be a bat, and her point of view as well. We know from poets that we can at least imagine ourselves or try to imagine ourselves into a corpse. And if that's the case, then that's seriously depressing if we can't manage a bat. Um, But what really struck me about that book initially was a fairly Simple point she makes that I guess would have been obvious to most people, but for some reason it totally struck me. In um, one of her first speeches, she's telling the story of Wolfgang Kohler, who was one of the founders of modern psychology, and who experimented on a group of chimps in the Tenerife Islands, um, in the island of Tenerife in the Canary Islands, in 1913, and. He basically set up a series of experiments that now look to us kind of farcical, but at the time were considered incredibly innovative, where he would put, like, some materials in this yard and see whether the chimp um, would arrange them in such a way that they would help him get a banana that was hanging up from overhead. And he found that the chimp did, and that the way that Kohler framed that experiment was in saying, look— there's more to learning than simple trial and error. It's there's some role that insight is playing here, and um, the trial and error model had been this guy Edward Thorndike, um, who I mean, this is also part of what's I think part of what inspired us with the podcast too. Is like the deeper you dig into the human sciences, the more you realize how animals play this fundamental role at the very Dawn of the co- concepts that we have today, like trial and error, for example, which stemmed from these experiments that um, this guy Edward Thorndike performed on cats. Poor cats had to hang out in this box with a lever and try to press the lever. Anyway, so so in Cotzia's book, this novelist Elizabeth Costello is giving this speech where she's recounting Kohler's experiments with the chimps. And her basic idea is, well, her question is what form of reasoning is Kohler testing for in that model? And her answer is that he's testing for instrumental reason. So can I use X to get Y? And her point is, well, that's certainly one form of reason and one form of thought, but even in our own community, we define it as the least sophisticated line of thought. Um, And she's kind of giving this subversive, take on what the experiment's actually teaching us and her her conclusion is that, oh, well, we're learning a lot about Kohler and the limitations of his imagination, despite how progressive he was at the time, really the limitations of received wisdom about animals at the time. So we're learning about, about him and about the kinds of thinking that we value as a species, as opposed to all the myriad other ways of being in the world and of using your mind and using your imagination.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. There's a quote which I would pulled from Cotsilla's, um book, and I should say for anyone who hasn't read it, just to clarify, the book is set up um, around this character who's a novelist herself named Elizabeth Costello, who's sort of an alter ego for Coetzee himself. And she's invited to give a guest lecture at a liberal arts college, which— Originally, Coetzee wrote the book and had been invited to give just such a lecture at Princeton as part of a prestigious lecture series on human values. So in a way, the book was mirroring his own life. But in it, he has a quote to the effect of what you just read, which is about sympathy and imagination, which I found very interesting and is very relevant to your book too, where he writes that sympathy has everything to do with the subject and little to do with the object there are people who have the capacity to imagine themselves as someone else. There are people who have no such capacity. And then there are the people who have the capacity but who choose not to exercise it and that there are no bounds to the sympathetic imagination, which I, thought, I think is very interesting because I think often with and the point that Prue is really making in her speech, one of them is that we are not ex- exercising our imagination when it comes to birds and birdsong. And, um, you know, what potentially they're capable of in communicating to us.
0: I love that quote. And I think that that is one of the things that I was trying to explore through her. I mean, it's fascinating. With fiction, it's—speaking of imagination, it just—like as someone who also deals with more academic writing and the monograph and propositional language where you're making an argument— It's such – it's so aerating to the mind to think through characters because – partly because it relieves the burden of your own ego that's tethered to the language when you're making an argument and partly because it lets you participate in this crazy quest that I think the sciences try to accomplish of inhabiting another mind. And, of course, in the case of fiction, it's not a real mind, which makes it a form of controlled psychosis.
1: Well, it's interesting. So at the end of the Coetzee book, um, in its modern printing, they have a number of essays from luminaries in the field of animal welfare and rights, one of which is from Peter Singer. And he, Peter Singer's essay is a fictionalized account in which the character Peter, <laughs> as Peter Singer writes, complains that Coetzee hasn't really delivered a lecture on animal rights because he's hidden, effectively, behind a veil of fiction— and that if he he sh- kind of implies that he should come out with a full-on you know animal rights platform, and we know in real life that Kotsia is a tremendous animal rights advocate. I wonder, could you speak to why why write this speech as a piece of fiction embedded in a story in the same model as Kotsia, as opposed to say just giving the speech? Yeah, yeah.
0: I um, first of all, I think. Fiction is much more capacious as a medium to think through something because it allows you, through dramatic language, to explore what's at stake in the questions that we fiercely debate in academies and beyond. And to me, that stuff is sort of where the rubber hits the road in terms of being more, at least to me, kind of more interesting in some ways or at least more telling. In fiction, it's like you have all of these characters that go out and they're all parts of you. And so, of course, a very strong part of me completely agrees with what she said and would deliver that kind of speech myself. But I think a stronger part of me was, I guess, more interested in understanding her as a a whole person as opposed to just a thinker. I think what surprised me most about the process of drafting the novel after drafting the speech initially was one of the first things that came, was realizing that her speech meant so much more than I had initially imputed to it. And it was really her way of kind of articulating claustrophobia in her life and in her marriage and her own sense of despair um, and also hope and kind of irony. And so I guess to answer your question, the process of embedding it in a fictional document allows those resonances, at least for me as the writer allows them to come through in an exciting way. Whereas I think publishing something as a monograph, those other meanings
1: are lost. Mm. Well it's interesting because in a way, hearing you say that reminded me that the book sort of answers my own question of what would happen if you gave the speech in real life, since we see the reaction afterwards, just basically Prue gives the speech Saying birds have language just like us, and humans are a lot less exceptional. This is a great simplification. It's much more eloquent and profound than this. But that that humans are much less exceptional than we think we are, and that this has profound implications morally and scientifically. And afterwards, the speech does not go over particularly well with her colleagues. And there's a party back at. They all drive home, and there's a party back at her house um, to celebrate her speech and her advancement. Per the speech's success towards a potentially tenure-track position. And at the party, Prue has just given this speech about how what we're doing to animals is horrific in so many ways, given what we now understand. And everyone acts like everything's fine. And they just go about and they're kind of they're kind of uh, you know, muttering to themselves when they get a minute among their cheese and crackers and so forth, um, about you know, what just happened in the in the speech. But for the most part, everyone goes about their business and they have this cocktail party at home as if nothing went wrong. And then in comes Frank, the character who we heard from at the beginning, who is horrified at how animals are being treated in general and is even more horrified and set off by the fact that no one else has paid attention to what's just been said by his daughter about the animals. And that sets him off um, into a whole number of extraordinary... And just totally captivating and entertaining and shocking, in some cases, scenes. But what was really interesting about this was that um, after your book launched last month, there was a wonderful party to celebrate the launch and publication of your book, which I had the pleasure of attending with many of your friends and family. And at the celebration, you read – not you didn't read the speech, but you read from um, a section after the speech where Frank at the party, where Frank is standing on this table – and is listing off. I remember vividly a couple lines where he's saying, "You know what do shoes and bookbinding and bags all have in common?" And no one answers him. And he says, "Cows!" And um, and so you read you read this with with more context. Um, and um, and everybody clapped, and it was a great it was a great celebration. But in a way, the same thing happened in real life as what just happened in the book that you gave this speech here on you know what we're doing to animals, re- reflected through your characters, of course and everybody myself included i didn't think about it until afterwards went about you know when about the when about the party afterwards without um, the focus on animals being the dominating force and i wonder if that if that struck you or or what you thought about that it was a real testament to the accuracy and poignancy of your of your writing that it played out in real life too there's a story
0: by ursula Le Guin called the one to walk away from omelas it's it's about this town in which um, everyone's prospering. There are these festivals all the time. People are pretty happy. They have their human dramas, but they're fine. And at a certain age, each child in the town has to go um, visit this building in which it's said that the, all the flourishing of the, t- the town depends. And in the building is a child who's being um isolated and neglected and basically tortured. And it's the suffering of this child that explains um, the prosperity of the markets and the laughter of the children and the warmth of the homes. And in the story, some people, when they meet the child and they kind of face the suffering, leave the town, and some kind of make their peace with it. But I think it came to mind because, I mean, I think about this all the time. And I mean, I, I can only imagine what it's like for people who are actually engaged in the just stupefying level of pain that beings experience so that we can buy what we want to buy at the supermarket. I'm not someone who's even visited the child, so to speak. I mean, I've seen media about it, but I wonder, I wonder. What it would be like if, as part of our kind of civic development, we had to face face the spaces and the beings—I mean, human and non-human alike—whose lives enable us to buy what we want to buy. I think—I mean—it's a dark way to look at it, but I do think there's truth to it, and and that's why I guess Frank's character was such a joy for me because. I mean, a painful joy. He's someone who kind of can't stand the lunacy of of things when you see them like that or when you try to kind of imagine how, like, a future generation would look back on this this era. But the fact that he can't stand it leads him to inflict irreparable damage on the people he
1: loves. But in a way, we all have, whether, you know, we visited a factory farm or— Seen an animal experiment in action or not, through language, through reading, and through storytelling, be it audio or written, mo- or or on television or in a documentary, most of us have been to Omelas or been to the house in that story, in a way, at least through the imagination. Right.
0: That's true, and I guess I guess very few of us walk
1: away. Yeah. What was it like when you were doing the research for this book? And you, you've talked about the bird song studies, but there are a number of other studies that you researched as well that have to do with animals and how humans experiment on them. And I'm wondering what it was like to read them. And in particular, I'm thinking about one that plays a prominent role in the book that is um, about voles and heartbreak. And I should say, too, that the, the characters in the book, of course, and the studies are fictionalized, but they're based on real studies that that were done by academics recently. Will you talk about that study and why it was so impactful to you? Yeah, that, gosh. I mean, this
0: is a point you've also made that with animals, there's sort of an equal parts wonder and horror at at how, at, at sort of what they are coerced into doing at our hands. But in this particular case, it was a German scientist, the study came out. Just a few years ago, and it was on grief. And it was I mean, my guess is it was funded with grant proposals that basically said, Here, we're going to look at, we're going to model grief in an animal model, and this may enable us to develop some drugs around mourning. There was also the motive to just kind of find out if this other mammal, the vole, which is sort of a softer version of the mouse, experiences this thing we experience. So, so the experimenter in this case took a group of voles, enabled half of them to bond with, with a mate, um, and voles mate for life, so, th- so the bonds are pretty strong. And half the group didn't have mates and basically just sort of went about their day. In the experiment, the voles, all of the voles were put through a series of tests. One was they were dangled by the tail another in pitch darkness, another was they were put in a maze with no exit, in another they were tossed into a beaker of water and observed around whether they would try to keep themselves afloat. And surprise, surprise, the voles that had been separated from their mates just floated there listlessly or hung there or just sort of huddled in the maze. And the ones that hadn't yet had mates and weren't separated from their mates, thrashed and tried to get free. So, I mean, yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty devastating to read an experiment like that part. and it's also weirdly funny. Like, what are we doing? I mean, like, why is it so interesting to us to find out whether this emotion that causes us so much distress is shared by one of our evolutionary cousins? I mean, <laughs> it's just so poignant in a way because it's like i mean we spent so we spent most of our evolutionary history surrounded by all these other beings not having conquered the earth with a very limited material culture and as we've sort of i think we've talked about this came up on some episodes this notion of the eremocene rather the rather than the anthropocene of it's sort of Humans have become a geologic force on Earth in terms of the impact we're having. But on the other hand, it's also there are tremendous emotional costs to that and to becoming the only act in town um, and costs to kind of I think that we feel in how we relate to each other and how we think about who we are. And so I think that one way to look at these um Seemingly kind of draconian, absurd experiments that are going on all over the world is to see them
1: as a symptom of that. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's interesting to think about that in relation to why literature is so powerful at moving our hearts and minds, too. To hear you speak about those experiments reminds me of a point that you'd made to me um, a long time ago, which was about uh, Stanley Milgram's experiments here at Yale as they relate to literature. And for as many people probably know, Milgram. Um, conducted a series of experiments in, I believe, the 60s. And what these experiments are, which are very famous and you know, taught in most introductory psychology classes, are about obedience to authority figures in different situations. And the general setup, as many people know, is that there was an experimenter. Giving instructions, and there was a subject on one side of a wall, and then a subject on the other side of the wall. And the subject on the same side of the wall, the experimenter was told that by pressing a series of buttons, they'd be administering shocks to the to the subject on the other side of the wall, and um, they were supposed to just follow the experimenter's instructions. And over time, they'd increase the amount of the shock, Um, and you. They would hear, of course, it was an actor in real life; no one was receiving a shock, but hear screams of agony, basically, and the. There are a lot of thoughts now on what actually went on in these experiments and what they show us and controversy about how to interpret them and so forth. But one interpretation is that – modern interpretation is that when you look at the script the experimenter had and whether or not the person on their side of the wall followed it or not, there's a shift that occurs when the um, script shifts from things like saying like it's important for science that you keep going. Or it's really, you know, it's important for the experiment that we keep moving on. So, you know, keep administering the shocks, and I'm paraphrasing here. But um, but then there's a shift midway through to imperatives of you must keep going or keep going. And when the shift occurred, it seems like more of the subjects backed off and were able to resist sort of what the experimenter was telling them, which in a way I think is interesting with regards to fiction too, which is a point you made to me, which is that... By allowing it to be sort of more subtle, these ideas that are, you know, big and profound and hard to take about ourselves, sort of seep into you less directly, in a way that's perhaps more powerful and more effective at reaching people, and getting them to understand your point of view versus giving the speech flat out and just commanding them. Right,
0: right. I think no, I I I find that also fascinating, and I think it also applies equally. To the perspective of the writer, um, because to me, I mean, it's it's amazing the parts of yourself you can reach through non-propositional language, through um, poetry or fiction. It's just an endless surprise, um, and that's part of what makes it kind of frightening in certain ways. Because if you're really doing it, you're kind of going on this exploration and you don't really know what you'll find or who you'll find or what parts of yourself you'll find but the language because it's right because it's not kind of declarative language it kind of invites you on that journey in a way that setting out yeah to write a paper I don't think I think yeah it's it's maybe fair to say that it's less the case there I mean it and it does to your point too it's I think that makes it, that kind of adds a new interesting gloss on this question of why we look for the qualities of that we look for in other animals. So for example, why we're so obsessed with finding out whether they have language or why we're so obsessed with finding out whether they can recognize themselves in mirrors. We almost fetishize certain elements of our world and our way of speaking that I guess, make us feel secure.
1: Thinking about the question of how we measure other animals then necessarily brings up the idea of thinking about how would they measure us. It's like with language, for instance, you could think about a bat where bats can pick out of a cacophony of sound their own clicking, um, echoing back at them. Whereas, of course, if you put a whole enormous number of humans in a giant stadium and ask them to pick out their particular sound in a total din— any intelligent bat would immediately be able to tell you that humans do not recognize themselves and are probably pretty <laughs> bad at language too for that matter so I think I think that that the idea of using imagination with regards to other humans to be more empathetic but and even more so in some ways with regards to other animals since it requires even more imagination perhaps um, is extremely powerful and I love that
0: idea of, of what the world looks like, what our world would look like from their point of view. And ironically, I mean, our sciences search for objectivity, right? But of course, they present us with a sentient point of view on our world. So in a sense, they're more objective than we are. They don't have any fidelities with our world. Mm -hmm. They can kind of see it plain. And um, I guess we don't have much reason to think that they would see it as any more rich, or sensible, than we see their worlds
1: certainly noisier. Well, I really loved this novel, Lindsay, and I know you're already working on more fiction, uh, which I can't wait for, but you're also, which I think also has to do with animals in some ways, um, but I know you're also working on nonfiction projects, and in particular, you've been writing a piece about one of our previous guests on this podcast, um, Sue Savage-Rumba, who's a very famous primatologist who um, studies bonobos. Can you tell me about the experience of reporting and uh, working and getting to know Sue and how that shaped this novel? Yeah, so
0: we connected thanks to a teacher of mine at the, at the Iowa workshop named Benjamin Hale, who has a wonderful novel from the point of view of a chimpanzee. And he connected me with her as a way to kind of um, do research for my own project, because she's such a luminary in the field. And Through the process of meeting her, I I, realized—I came to learn about this custody battle she's in for the group of apes that she raised um, in this linguistic environment in Des Moines. And I was so captivated by her experiment and then by the further nuance that there are these group of apes just there capable of, if not using syntax, communicating their wishes and desires and feelings— to humans, by way of this keyboard she developed, and that they're kind of there in Iowa. I guess, I mean, I've thought a lot about why I was drawn to this, and I think, and what came to mind is Kafka has this story, Report to an Academy, um, narrated by an ape that's giving an address to a group of academics and kind of lamenting the fact that he's learned human language and longing for his former tongue and for for what that former tongue enabled him to express, that human language is kind of cramped out. And I guess I think what's part of what's so evocative about this situation of these close relatives of ours um, out there in Des Moines kind of inducted into our world and our sign systems without their consent, um, but because one kind of visionary scientist so wanted to understand how their minds worked and then once she felt that she had wanted our law to kind of catch up to what science had discovered about them um, struck me as just so poignant and almost um, a metaphor for just the human condition as as I think that story is of feeling Um, not at home in language and simultaneously loving it for the wonder it brings and for the connections it can bring. I I drove there right before I left Iowa um, to the lab. I wasn't hopeful about getting in for some of the reasons that I'm exploring in in the piece, but it's just sitting there beside a dried-out lake and... There's this big cement structure and a picture of one of the bonobos at the checkpoint outside, and inside are this group of beings that we parted ways from millions of years ago, but that we've sort of
1: found this connection to via her experiment. Is our wonder worth it? In both the book and in that case, Mm -hmm. there's an implicit critique of our taking of the animals from either the wild environment or phrasing them in this artificial environment in order to satisfy our own wonder, a wonder that is sometimes directed at understanding them, sometimes much more self-centered and focused on ourselves and projecting ourselves onto them. But regardless of what type of wonder, wonder, does the wonder justify that action? It reminds me of... Siebert's
0: line, Charles Siebert's line about our wonder is not worth their wounding I think this is a particularly rich example of potentially that in the case I think of zoos the answer to me is um, zoos in their kind of traditional form the answer is obviously no and I think that one could take issue too with just the premise that that an animal is something that even if you enrich its habitat belongs in a kind of live museum. So in that sense yeah, I don't I don't think so. I mean, what's so interesting though about the language experiments is that they emerged at a time when the kind of Zeitgeist was different and there were, on the one hand, these incredibly barbaric experiments going on um, in the vein of Harry Harlow, where you really were wounding the animal um, in physical ways and in direct emotional ways in order to extract some data about what aptitude it had. And the language experiments emerged sort of—they were completely different tack, and they— they they were messy and they and the field kind of fizzled out in part because things were so disorganized and and many of the animals that participated in them suffered just unthinkable kind of fates as a result they were sort of retired to biomedical facilities but i do think it's telling that that as opposed to kind of forcing ourselves to really face the biomedical industry and the for, the sorts of experiments like the vole experiment, where the question of how it's helping us is not always perfectly clear. Whereas instead of focusing on that, we kind of, as a community, vilified the attempt to speak to another animal, as problematic as that was, to kind of take someone out of their environment and just in one case, raise them in a Manhattan brownstone, and I should mention this is nothing. This has nothing in common with with the bonobo experiment, which was sort of a, an interesting outlier. But I do think we can learn a lot from that kind of that reaction of that we somehow found it so taboo and so uncanny to try to make contact verbally with another being, while in labs. Have much more heavily funded labs. We were perfectly content to be experimenting on them in much more invasive ways.
1: Well, Lindsay, as you know, we like to ask all of our podcast guests at the end of the show for several book recommendations that have influenced how they think about animals. Do several come to mind? <laughs> well, one you mentioned, Elizabeth Costello, for
0: sure. Um, Ted Chang has an exquisite story called the story of your life that the movie Arrival was actually based on. And in that, it's just—it's a dazzling story um, for anyone uh, who's remotely interested in in the question of, of language and linguistics and, and thinking and the relation between time and, and language. And let's see. Oh, now I see how hard this question must be for our poor guests. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean— the book, Kanzi's Primal Language, which deals with the experiment that we talked about at the end, is um, just fascinating. Um, it's a case study of this encounter with the bonobos and a kind of philosophical exploration of of what language is. And and that's by Sue Savage-Rumbaugh and the philosopher Par Segerdal. I would also have to say, I mean, Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations is a pretty extraordinary monument to the um, wonderfully intractable question of what language is. Mm.
1: One of the books that I would pick myself is Charlotte's Web. And in that book, there's a quote from E.B. White with regards to Charlotte the Spider, in which he writes that it's not often that someone comes along who's a true friend and a good writer. And it's really not often that someone comes along who's a true friend and a good writer and delightful podcast co-host. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for for joining me as a guest on When We Talk About Animals. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. Lindsay and I would love it if you'd subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Lindsay Stern and her debut novel. Thanks for listening.